The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's been nothing short of a real incredible week that we've lived through. The last seven days, March 14th, we have an exclusive interview with the chief executive of Credit Suisse. He comes on, 10-minute interview. He tries to reassure the markets. Fully convinced of the strategy. We are executing at Paris. We have the right team. And you know, that's why we said in October, it needs radical change. You know, the bank needs to be changed. And we said it's a three years transformation and you can't come after two months and say, look, why is not everything done? Two days later, there's an interview with one of their main shareholders, the Saudi National Bank. And he says, look, I'm not going to put an extra penny in. I'm wondering whether you would be open to assisting further if there was another call for additional liquidity from Credit Suisse. The answer is absolutely not for many reasons, outside the simplest reason, which is regulatory and statutory. We now own um, 9.8% of the bank. If we go above 10%, all kinds of new rules kick in. We knew that they would not go above 10% threshold. Markets panicked, markets freaked out. I remember Manus at the time, people were saying they're gonna be taken over. Credit Suisse were going to be taken over this weekend. And I literally looked at them and said, you're off your rocket. There's just no chance it would go so quickly. I mean, little did I know, how wrong was I? I think the one thing that everybody is surprised about is just the deal that UBS did. This is, you know, what were the phrases we were using on that rooftop in Zurich, you know, uncomfortable bedfellows, uh, shotgun wedding. These bells are not ringing for a marriage of joy. They are ringing as we herald the birth of a new bank, which is a marriage of great inconvenience to two leaderships that have been forced together but the triumphant bank of Van Hoek. It certainly wasn't in the plan for Ralph Hammers and Colin Kelleher. He's the new chair. Hammers has been there. It's all about the dividend and the buyback. Stable Mabel, you know, give it to the shareholders. It was never about, you know, for as long as Credit Suisse had angst and trouble, well, it was make hay at UBS, wasn't it? Yeah, and between us, and I was trying to do some back of the napkin calculations, on the plane to Zurich, I think you and I, Manis, have interviewed, have maybe had 55 interviews with various chief executives between Credit Suisse and UBS. I mean, obviously, if you count 55, a lot of them we've interviewed multiple times. So we got a call saying, get yourself to Zurich. I was on a short flight, you were on a longer flight. And then once we were in Zurich, there was this incredible press conference in Bern that no one really knew about because we think they want to keep it on the low side. But of course, we were there with the seven most powerful people in Switzerland telling us about the deal. I am pleased to be here today as we announce this integration, one that reinforces Switzerland as a leading global financial center. Bringing you And I remember we're standing in the in the Vitter Hotel, which is where we broadcast from. I was looking at you, you were looking at me, and I'm going, you're going to go to Bern, and you're going to take the kit with you, and you went, uh, yes. Hey, the producer made me run to get there. It's, it's actually like a two-hour car ride in traffic. We had to get a train. Abby, are we going to make it? Yeah, nine minute walk. Nine minute walk for a train that leaves in 15 minutes. And we got there just on time. (music) 
I'm Francine Lacquan. This is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. My co-host this week is not Dave Merritt. It's one Manus Cranny, Bloomberg TV host, and as you just heard, my fellow Swiss banking diehard or captive. <laughs> Fran, great to be with you. Yep, I've been on this UBS uh, train ride for 10 years now. Also with us, Paul Davies, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering banking and finance and Zurich-based finance reporter Marion Hoftofmeyer. So thank you all for joining us. When you look back, Paul, at, at the week that was, I mean, it's seven days. What did you learn? I know I ask you this every day, but the story moves on just so fast. Like when you look at back, was it fast? Was it convincing? Was it a mess? It was, it was very fast, obviously. I think the thing that I learned is that depositors can still run away from a bank even when there's not really necessarily any very strong reason to. And this was the, I mean, you said, we still thought at the end of last week, there's no way that this kind of takeover is going to happen. I remember talking to you on set about it. But I guess the thing that we didn't know is just how many deposits were still leaving the bank. And that seemed to accelerate again on the Friday. And I think that's why ultimately, you know, the, uh, the Swiss National Bank had to intervene and had to do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the week, as the week evolved, it became very clear that it wasn't just the Saudi National uh, Bank, the shareholder that wasn't prepared to put any more money in, but it was also by confidence and counterparty risk ebbing away. And that's one of the biggest issues throughout the week, isn't it, Marion? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Francine, we were watching that the Saudi comments really just take over the market on Wednesday. And when the SNB, the Swiss National Bank, came in with that liquidity backstop in that facility, we sort of thought, okay, is that enough to really calm the markets or is there something more going on here? And as Manus pointed out, like there was a lot of concern on actually how the panic was going to impact the business. Because when they had panic like that, Previously, they had so many outflows. And as we all know, when you have outflows and deposits start to become an issue, then it doesn't matter how capitally solid you are, so to speak, if you, if you just have a run on a bank. And then you see that panic come through to the weekend where everything just accelerated minute by minute. The, the acceleration was very intense. I just don't understand, Paul, how markets took the comments from the chairman of their biggest shareholder, right? So you have the Saudi National Bank, and he said, and they've always said they didn't want to go above 10%. So was there really market fears and market panic that, that you know, really accelerated the sell-off? You heard him, I guess, you know, question maybe the strategy, but it was also pretty clear that they were never really going to increase their shareholding. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I guess it's sort of, it's kind of a headline that landed in the middle of, you know, a very touchy, very kind of, you know, worried market anyway that was sort of already verging on the edge of panic. And I think, you know, if we sort of take a slightly longer view of, of Credit Suisse, I mean, even just since the, the strategy was announced in, in uh, late October uh, last year, if we take that sort of view, one of the problems that they've had is that they have just not been able to marshal any kind of real support in stock markets or bond markets. And every little bit of bad news, every kind of drop in valuation that you've seen, there's been kind of like no marginal buyer coming forward to say, you know, actually, this looks like great value here. There's been no support. And all of that, you know, fall in valuation of the stocks and the bonds feeds into the apparent riskiness of the bank and the other banks' willingness to deal with it and, you know, whether people will accept its bonds as collateral and all of this stuff, and we've had some great reporting about this from the markets team in, in the last uh, few days, 
just about how that kind of adds to the spiral because you know there's no supporters for the shares there's no supporters for the bonds anybody who is uh, using them in any way as security is is selling them because they're not good security anymore the riskiness of the bank just seems to get worse and worse all the time and everybody just kind of keeps moving away from it was it monday or tuesday fran the ceo was with you asking for patience in the studio in london you know this is something which you need to understand a lot of the restructuring costs you know, baked into the transformation are coming in 2023 before we see a lot of benefits um, out of that transformation. And that is something which happens. That's why we said it takes three years. And this is what I'd like to know from you, Marion. It's almost as if the market never really believed in Ulrich Kroner or Axel Lehman had the velocity to really turn this bank around, even though they'd reduced the investment bank a lot. Do you think there was a lack of belief in this management? Is that part of the, the bigger problem of Credit Suisse? That's exactly right, Manus. So you can't forget that ever since they announced their so-called big strategy, they were having an incredibly hard time actually convincing people that this was going to work. And so you had a lot of skepticism already that they were even the right team to do this in terms of their credibility, but also that any of their plans were going to solve their issues. I mean, we were reporting a lot about how they were trying to spin off this investment bank with Michael Klein and how there were a lot of negotiation tensions around that. And it just seemed like there was so much focus on giving investment bankers more money and less focus on actually the remaining business and how they were going to retain the wealth management part. So there was just a lot of like, uncertainty that this was even going to be something they could pull off. And they kept asking, you know, they kept saying, give us three years. But, you know, you you can't keep asking for three years when you've already had two, three years of scandals and, and mismanagement. Marion, when do you think it all went wrong for Credit Suisse? I know there was Archegos, there was Green Cell, there were a number of, you know, there was Mozambique. Is it a confluence or can you pinpoint to maybe a point in time where, where you thought, wow, this bank is really in trouble? I think that's a really good question because I've talked to a lot of people at the bank and former employees as well about this of, you know, what was the tipping point? And it's really actually hard to to pinpoint what part of the bank leads to this. I think you you kind of have to go back almost a decade in terms of their the way they grew at a breakneck speed, you know, and really wanted to take on Wall Street, but also be a big wealth manager. And, you know, the, the collapse of Swiss banking secrecy means that you have to do different things to get profit. But if you're really looking at the recent history, I would say when we had the corporate espionage scandal. Over the weekend that Credit Suisse had a banker uh, followed after he moved to UBS. And OK, first of all, the- a, a huge day, obviously, for, for, for TM and one of the most embarrassing uh, scandals and weirdest scandals, actually, in recent years to hit uh, Credit Suisse uh, or any. So when former executive Tijan Tiam apparently had set some spies on Iqbal Khan, the head of wealth at UBS now, that sort of opened up the door for this constant kind of revolving door of management. You know, it just wiped out everybody who was running this bank and they had to constantly change CEOs and chairmen. And and you can't get up to speed when you're at the bank for, you know, less than a year on such like widespreading global operations, right? And so then you keep having misses and things that are not being done properly. People who are focused on saving their own necks rather than saving the bank, right? I think to Marion's very good point is that if you're constantly changing and churning leadership, Paul, then it's very difficult to get ahead of anything. So we'll get onto the deal with UBS in a second, but it's just very difficult to see some of the risks in your bank. This is a large, systemically important bank with huge 
you know, huge footprint in different businesses. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, one of the other things that happened under Tijan Tiam's leadership was they really went through and you know, weakened the the kind of the risk management and uh, the compliance side of things. I mean, that was very much apparent from the, the report into the Archegos collapse that was released. And under his leadership, they were trying to turn things around quickly. They were trying to grow profits quickly. They were trying to change the focus of the bank. But it seems that the bank as an institution really took its eye off the ball of, of you know, what you were doing, what risks you were taking on, how you were managing those, and whether you had the right people with the right sort of internal power in charge of that sort of thing. And I think that's, that's definitely one of the things that set the bank up for this, you know, this spiral that it entered into in the last couple of years. So after the spiral came the deal. Marion, March 18th, we knew that they were negotiating the two banks. Did UBS at the end of the day clinch the deal of a lifetime? I think that's indisputable, actually, because if you think about the worth of the bank, you know, even with all the risks that we still don't know, you're getting a huge wealth management business. Um, yes, there's a, some overlaps, but you're getting that business really cheap. You know, it's like cents on the dollar, really, in terms of book value. And, you know, there have been so many talks over the years, so many rumors about UBS and Credit Suisse doesn't make sense to merge, et cetera. And there have been so many reasons not to do it. Um, and one of the key ones being that they are fundamentally culturally very different. But, you know, UBS is, I think they probably can't help but be grinning at their good fortune in a way of just the the level of, you know, business they're now going to be controlling in terms of market share. And I think I, I heard Marion, one uh, long-term bank investor, specialist bank investor yesterday, describe the deal as in three to five years' time, people will turn around and look at this as one of the best deals ever done in banking. Unless something goes wrong. So I remember I had one investor actually message me saying like, do you remember the quote of Fred Goodwin? Remember Fred the Shred from RBS? In, this was in 2008, I think, coming out of a meeting with Gordon Brown saying that wasn't a meeting, that was a drive-by shooting. I wonder whether the Credit Suisse leadership w would be feeling exactly the same, Paul. I think they'll feel uh, a, a lot like that. I mean, I mean, in some ways, maybe they'll be feeling a sense of relief that they now don't have this incredibly difficult job on their hands anymore. But I think they will feel definitely you know, railroaded, pushed into a deal that they didn't want to do, you know, their chance to kind of, you know, stabilize the bank and take it forward, taken away from them. And, you know, they were the ones who spent time talking Saudi National Bank and the Qataris into putting a significant amount of money into this business. Professionally, they've, uh, you know, they've, they've put their sort of reputations on the line here. They've got a significant amount of money into the bank. And now all of that has gone away. And certainly in terms of leadership, Credit Suisse was definitely a price taker in this situation. I mean, they did not have a choice, really. They were facing nationalization, the brink, or whatever UBS wanted to buy them for. So in terms of a deal of a lifetime, if you can be a party in a negotiating room where you know the other person doesn't have an option, then you can just go for the kill, right? And then certainly among employees, you know, we've been talking a lot to employees of both banks over the last couple of days just to see the reaction. And there's an incredible lot of frustration um, and, you know, people feel let down. They feel let down by the current management. They felt let down by the previous managements. You know, they have, some of them have had their careers there for 20 plus years and are seeing that completely washed away now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the issue now. We move into a period of where UBS has got to work out a plan for the way forward. There's huge crossover, isn't there, Marion, between wealth management, asset management. We know they're actively downsizing the investment bank, but just give us a sense of the scale of the numbers that maybe we're looking at in terms of the overlap and what's going to happen next in terms of reducing headcount. There's a reality here. Is people are going to lose their jobs, aren't they? Yeah, that's that's exactly the reality that people are grappling with. I mean, one of the first text messages I got from a contact was, how many months until I lose my job, right? So in terms of sense of scale, I mean, Credit Suisse was already cutting 9,000 jobs. This is going to be probably triple or quadruple that, you know, at this point. And we had a great story out from our colleagues across, actually collaboration across the world with, you know, just the amount of calls headhunters are fielding, right? You know, thousands probably are calling asking, how do I get out before either UBS fires me um, or that there's no more jobs on the market? So we're going to see a lot of a lot of movements in the coming months on in terms of the banking um, job talent industry. Marion and Paul, can you describe what we mean by culturally different? It's incredible. I mean, there are two Swiss banks, big Swiss banks. They live close to each other. If you go to Zurich, there's a UBS side by side by Credit Suisse. And it really, you know, comes home when you look at Paradenplatze. Why have they differed so much through the years? So one of the things is, you know, when it's pointed out, the CSFB and this culture of investment banking, I think that that has been stronger at Credit Suisse recently than at UBS. And part of that stems from the financial crisis. After the financial crisis, UBS took a a state bailout and they chose to make that really difficult decision of downsizing the investment bank. And that has really put a like they've consistently put less emphasis on that. And so the sort of Swiss wealth management culture has prevailed there. They've also historically had more people coming from military style backgrounds. And if you look at the executive team at UBS and the board, they're much more Swiss heavy. So you get that culture feeding through. Whereas at Credit Suisse, they've always equally looked at investment banking and wealth management as equally important in terms of profit and the emphasis they want to put on it. Um, And there's always been this tension between does Wall Street run this bank or does the Swiss private bankers run this bank? And neither of those people have ever really understood each other. Um, and so you, you always have this constant tension. But however, what, what makes Credit Suisse unique in having both of those strong bids is that they've been able to capitalize that and sort of integrate it. And you see this particularly in Asia, where you have a wealthy entrepreneur, you know, startup business, who has a lot of things that they need to do on an investment banking side, but also have their wealth to be banked as well. And so Credit Suisse really capitalized on that by being strong in both. And that then comes in with this whole risk management aspect is if you're going to bank someone on both sides like that, and you're going to have this holistic approach, you need to be really good at tracking risk. I'd follow that up with a sort of a broader point as well in the sense of, if you look back at the financial crisis 2007-2008, there's you know, a bunch of banks that had very near-death experiences, UBS being one of them, and had to take you know, significant government help. And the kind of the shock to the system, the shock to the culture from that, I think, was very sobering for a lot of those institutions. And then there's a slate of others 
got around getting government assistance who didn't need bailouts, who kind of like survived on their own and maintained a kind of a, a somewhat brasher culture, I think, because of that going forward. And I think all of those banks have, have had their periods of trouble. If you think about Deutsche Bank, if you think about some of what Barclays went through as well, and now Credit Suisse, these are all banks that avoided, you know, bailouts in, in Europe and tried to carry on doing things much the way they'd done them before. And that turned out to be a bit of an error. And this is something, Francine, you and I were chatting about in terms of the personalities that were involved in this between Ralph Hammers and Colin Keller. Colin Keller, of course, steered Morgan Stanley through um, you know, a massive sort of disruption in 2008 in the global financial crisis. And this is where he probably came to the forefront scene, isn't it? This is what we were chatting about in terms of pushing this deal through, which was, you know, let's talk about the deal, which is wiping out risky bondholders and still keeping the equity portion. Maybe that was a bit more political than financial, but it really, some people sort of say this is where Colin Callagher came into his own as the chairman at UBS, isn't it? I mean, it was pretty incredible. We're all like now experts on AT1s. I know Paul has always been an expert, but I've been reading more notes than I care to to even know that are around on AT1s and whether this was a policy mistake and why Switzerland did that. And we're going back to, you know, Fitch ratings, right things on AT1s in 2022. Paul, was this a policy mistake? I mean, we were there in the press conference, the seven most powerful people in Switzerland, and no one really mentioned with any clarity and there were questions on them about 81s being wiped out and why that was the case. I mean, even still like two, three days later, wherever we are, there's still a lot of debate going on among people who really understand this stuff about whether, you know, this was justified or not, whether it was in the documents or not. I think the thing is, is that when you get to the point where a bank has to be rescued one way or another over the course of a weekend, you know, regulators, you know, government authorities, central bankers, will always do whatever they need to do. And if you risk lawsuits later, which, you know, you often might do, so be it. It's like the importance of stopping some kind of broader chaos spreading is significantly more important than necessarily worrying about the niceties of even 16 billion Swiss francs worth of bonds. I'm going to take one for the team and explain 81s, Paul. 81s, a type of fixed income security, basically, that was introduced, right? after the global financial crisis, um, that was basically an instrument to bolster bank capital levels. Is that How did I do? <laughs> Is that how you explain 81s? Yeah, that's kind of right. It was sort okay. of like a stop to the system to allow banks to get away without having to raise quite so much equity, essentially. Right. And it's a kind of a way of just sort of slightly extending the equity while pretending that you're not. Yeah, okay, I like that. Pretending that you're not married. Was this a policy mistake? I mean, this is Switzerland wanting this, right? This is basically Swiss law saying, look, we're taking over. We can really do what we want in terms of seniority and who we pay back. Are we going to be talking about this three, four, five months down the line and what it means for the Swiss banking system? I think it's hard to say if it was a policy mistake or not. We have to remember that this was an emergency situation. We asked about how there was a lot of tension around UBS taking Credit Suisse's Swiss business and what that meant for competition, right? And and one of the answers that we got was, well, in this situation, you know, resolving a bank that might go bankrupt was more important than antitrust, right? And so you get a, a bit of a glimpse of the situation that these policymakers were facing was, you know, when does one rule trump another, right? And I, I guess that has implications going forward. And we saw that in the AT1 bond market, right? But it's hard to say that they've done the wrong thing. So what happens to the merger, Paul? Is it going to be a success? And will it have, can we actually call the banking crisis over? 
I would uh, definitely hesitate to say that we can call it over. It's like, you know, this has been a very strange and peculiar episode. And uh, it, it was really difficult to kind of see many of these things forthcoming. And so it's difficult to say that something else might not pop up. In terms of the merger, I mean, it's going to be very interesting. They have a they have a huge margin for error. The kind of the wipeout of equity, the wipeout of the AT1s and the government guarantee that they have to help them if they want to sell down Credit Suisse's non-core portfolio incredibly rapidly. I mean, it all adds up to something like $70 billion worth of, you know, sort of capital cushion that they've been given that you could kind of spend on on losses, essentially, on kind of shifting assets quickly, paying people to go away, shutting down computer systems, and so on and so forth. So they have a lot of leeway. If UBS was going to do any kind of deal at all, I think a very large you know, wealth asset management deal is what they would have been after. I mean, when they ditched the wealth front US kind of digital platform deal last year, you know, it was because it didn't really, it wasn't big enough. It didn't move the needle. It didn't really fit in with what I think Com Kelleher wanted to do. So that's the kind of thing they would have been after. The only problem is, how do you shut down the investment bank? Is Com Kelleher the, the man in charge here? Is he the one you're watching? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think strategically, uh, almost certainly. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that Things change slightly as soon as he came in and the Wellfront deal was ditched, suggests that he has the strategic whip hand. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. And if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate, review, and please subscribe. It helps people find our show. So please do take time to leave us a little something. Our producer will be thrilled. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacqua, with the help of Manus Cranny. In the City, produced by Summer Sadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Paul Davies and Marion Holtzmeyer. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.